0: This is City Club, and and we really uh, pride ourselves on, on pulling together government, community, philanthropic, cultural, academic, business leaders to convene here and sort of navigate the, the future of our great city. Um, so Chair Lowe, I just want to mention that and welcome, welcome you to the room where it happens, at least here in Chicago. Um, so we're, we're looking forward to... To hearing from you and our distinguished panelists, who I'm going to let Gabe introduce in just a minute. Um, and, and before we do that, we're going to open today's program with a reading um, from artist Felita Hicks. Um, and she, oh, where where did she go? Oh, there she is. Okay, so please uh, please provide a great City Club welcome to Felita Hicks, who's going to open us up with what I can't wait to hear is a great poem thank you welcome to City Club
1: hello everyone I want to thank Gabe Lyon uh, for inviting me Illinois Humanities has embraced me as a new transplant to the city of Chicago it has been a great privilege to meet so many of the people in the community who are doing the great work and seeing how you support artists so thank you so much This is Root Work. From the tip of the root to the tip of the leaf, from the tip of the leaf to the tip of the root, we dream in soil and seed till our dreaming ends in a grand and brilliant garden. Let us praise then the hand at work on breaking through the course in heavy dirt, the many hours spent invested in healing, what was harmed, what was broke. Let us praise the hand, the hands still persevering through each and every night to feed the landscape till ripe enough for humble gaze our harvest in early morning's light. Let us imagine this garden's growth is unencumbered by brick walls, by steel gates, by locked and guarded doors, by low ceilings, by tables with little space, by the torch and its terrible heat, by the breach of ignorant hate. A garden. Allowed to grow naturally enthusiastic, feeding both you and me with the wisdom of observation, the freedom found in inquiry, the lessons of doubt and fallacy when faced with only the provision of our reality, a garden where time is slowed just enough to find the grace in our every breath, where we can come together and share the resources that are the difference between life and death, from soil to seed, from tree to book, from page to page we have all dreamed to look and find ourselves in ecstatic bloom, the messengers of our era too, so again let us praise the hand the hands, tilling messages of humanity's excellence the people keeping us alive and well stem to root with their words and actions their passions and truth say, say, say from the tip of the leaf to the tip of the root, from the tip of the root to the tip of the leaf. Together we dream in soil and seed till our dreaming ends in our grand and brilliant garden.
0: Can we start every city club with you? That would be amazing. Thank you, um, thank you, Felita. And and now I'd like to welcome a great partner of the City Club who really pulled all this together, and uh, this was her, her brainchild. And and it's, it's great to have uh, Gabe Lyon as a partner. Please welcome uh, from Illinois uh, Humanities, Gabe Lyon. Thank you. Take it away.
2: Let's hear it. Thank you. Let's hear it for Felita Hicks, everybody. You know we cannot. We cannot have the humanities without an invocation. And so thank you, Felita, for helping us set our intention and our practice for today. This is an extraordinary room. And one of the things is, if you like this poem and you think Felita's awesome, her books on second book's on the way out. You can pre-order it. It is worth it. And uh, it's from Haymarket House, a homegrown press right here. So, you know, she's a spoken word artist and a cultural strategist. And, Felita, thank you so much for helping us get started. Um, Our catalyst, really, for gathering, I'm going to use a little science. a catalyst for gathering is the visit of Chair Shelley Lowe to Illinois, and to Chicago. It's her inaugural visit, and one of the things I hope that we, um, that you all get to see, that I've gotten to see as I've gotten to know her, is the things that we care about, the, that the folks care about in this room. They're central to her platform as the leader of the National Endowment for the Humanities, um, telling undertold stories, thinking about culture. As an investment in our future, and um, I'm so grateful, Shelley, that you agreed to be with us in this room, which is a very special kind of gathering. So I'm going to turn it over to you, and we're going to get the program started. Good
3: afternoon, everybody. Please keep eating. They gave me a little bit of lunch beforehand, so I'm good. Sometimes I get places and I'm like, but what about me? I want to eat. Um, My name is Shelly Lowe. I'm Navajo. I grew up on the Navajo Reservation in northeast Arizona. Chair of the National Endowment for the Humanities. First ever Native American chair. Second ever woman. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. I now live and work in Washington, D.C. It's not my favorite, but it's okay. Wow. Um, I'm so delighted to be here today and to have a, a little bit of a conversation after my opening remarks. Um, first, I have to thank Felita for For opening us up, for getting us going, for getting us thinking, for talking about roots, for thinking about where we can reach those tips. I really thought that that was amazing. Thank you so much. I want to thank Gabe, of course, for helping to organize this trip and for everyone who is here today to hear about how important the humanities are because I know you guys know the humanities are important. I know you know humanities is what we do every day and everything that we do. And I know that sometimes we have to be reminded. I want to acknowledge um, two of my staff members who are here today. Scott Weingart is here at the front table. And Jill Austin is here as well. So if you have questions and you can't get me, they're here. Um, Scott is director of our Office of Data and Evaluation and Jill is a senior program officer in public programs. So questions about data, Scott. Questions about grants, public programs, Jill. Sorry. Um, So, you know, I'm just so excited to be visiting different places across the country. I have to say, happy Valentine's Day. It is also Arizona's birthday, so it is also my um, second year anniversary. I started in this position two years ago on February 14th. It was a Monday. It was the perfect day. I was like, oh, I'll always remember it then. And it was Arizona's birthday, which to me is really important um, because I have to remember where I came from, and I have to always think about that in the work that I do in this position. But, you know, I want to talk first about a project that I've heard a lot about, um, and I know that maybe some of you have heard about as well. And it's developed by our our state partner, Illinois Humanities, and it's the Gwendolyn Brooks Youth Poetry Awards, which honor the legacy of Illinois' own Gwendolyn Brooks, who's a, a renowned poet, author, and the first black Pulitzer Prize winner. And each... Yes, exactly. And this is really exciting to me because it's also a project that reaches young people. And each and every one of the young poets who take part in this competition is a part of this wonderful legacy, the legacy that Gwendolyn Brooks has created. And Brooks summed up the contest best in a note in 1977 when she said, All the children who entered the contest are winners. They worked hard, they created, and that is what is important. And in a letter, Illinois former Poet Laureate, Angela Jackson, invited all people to enter the realm of the poem. And again, thank you to Felita for bringing us into that realm of poetry right at the beginning. But Jackson says, poetry belongs to each of us, wealthy, super rich, middle class, working class, poor. She says also, I think the shout out, middle class working class and poor have a storehouse of poems yet to be heard. We are each rich with the beauty and purpose of words. If written words are available to us and we let their potential in. And I think this is a great example of the power of humanities. And we know, I'm sure you all know, that formally the humanities are things like history, philosophy, literature, language, ethics, law, archaeology, and I can go on and on and on. But you also remember that at one point you took a history class, right? Everyone took a history class. Maybe you took an American Lit class. Maybe you took art history Or maybe you took a business course and it touched on American industry. Now, NEH has funded many, many projects about industry and the economy of the United States, from the papers of Alexander Hamilton, the founding architect of the American economy, to the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan where NEH grants have supported educational programs, exhibits, and recently, the replacement of the roof on its main storage building. Those really sexy things. <laughs> but from the philosophical to the down-to-earth, and two years ago, NEH funded a book about McDonald's and the civil rights movement, which won a Pulitzer Prize. And it's called Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, and it's written by Marsha Chatelain. And she is a professor of history at Georgetown University, and she grew up in Chicago. And this book describes the sometimes difficult process by which the fast food giant McDonald's moved into the inner city and helped advance some of the goals of the civil rights movement, such as black ownership, and how black-owned franchises then changed the face of the larger corporation. Now, does that sound like a humanities project to you? Does that sound like an economics project? I think it sounds like both. And you may not realize how much the humanities have impacted you and that they are a part of everything we do. And they are quite literally what make us human. The stories, the teachings, the experiences, both individual and collective, that inform how we live, how we interact with each other, How we interact with nature, and how we make decisions, and those decisions we make. These are all the ideas that illuminate our understanding of our place in the world and the ideals that shape the values that guide us. And even when we do not take the time to consider the particular encounters we have with humanities on a daily basis, the humanities help us to interpret the events in our lives and the world around us. Now, I always have poetry in my remarks as well. So I'd like to quote another poem, Perhaps the World Ends Here, by the recent U.S. Poet Laureate Joy Harjo of the Muscogee Creek Nation. She writes, The world begins at a kitchen table. It is here that children are given instructions on what it means to be human. We make men at it. We make women. And this, to me, is exactly who we are. We absorb the instructions from our earliest days, often most memorably from those conversations around the kitchen table, or perhaps around the lunch table. And we continue to grow, and we continue to refine those instructions, and we act upon them, and with each new experience, we think back to those instructions that we learned. Now, I told you I grew up in a small rural Navajo community in northeast Arizona, and I carry with me every single day the history, the traditions, the values that I learned at the kitchen table growing up. And I learned from my parents, from my grandparents, from my aunts and uncles, from my cousins, from many, many extended family members. In some way, we got 12 people around a table that sits four. I don't know how that happens. (laughs) But not long ago, it dawned on me that I've always known and been informed by the humanities because in its simplest explanation, humanities is our creation story. Now, as a Navajo, this creation story consists of an emergence from four other worlds, the placement of our four sacred mountains, the creation of first man and first woman, the teachings of the holy people, and the relationship of every Dine person to changing woman and to each other. And these humanities lessons were embedded in the Navajo language and culture that surrounded me on an everyday basis. I was taught them in school. I was taught them outside of school. And these important lessons were continually strengthened through repetition, in song, in prayer, in poems, in community gatherings, and of course at the kitchen table. And now in Washington, D.C., I continue to build and draw upon these foundations, these very strong cultural foundations in my interactions with students, with neighbors, in my daily encounters with the city and its many, many, many institutions, and in the personal traditions and histories that I have formed around my own kitchen table with my own children and my grandchildren. And each of these encounters involves an exchange of knowledge. An opportunity to share my stories with other individuals, and in turn receive stories and wisdom from the people and places who are around me and surrounding me. Now I want each of you to be aware of and treasure the creation stories and the kitchen table lessons that you carry with you, and please share them generously with the rest of the world, and seek out those stories from your neighbor's from your institutions, from your city, and from our country. Because each is unique and each has an important lesson. And the cultural knowledge that you have acquired over your lifetime will anchor you and help you forge your own path in life rather than seeking to conform to somebody else's. And are their lessons and ideas merely of personal interest to us? Yes, but I don't always think so. So let me attempt, and let's say attempt, to put them in economic terms, if I can. In March 2023, the Bureau of Economic Analysis released its annual report on the arts and culture sector in our economy, which increased almost 14% from 2020 to 2021 and represented more than $1 trillion in economic activity. And that was before concert tours like. Taylor Swift's era tour (laughs) or Beyonce's Renaissance tour, which also put major bumps into local economies as music fans flocked to these cities. They shelled out big bucks for concert tickets, for travel, for hotel rooms, and of course for the the all ever-inclusive merchandise. But now you might think what we've started to talk about has left the subject of poetry behind. And we're just talking about business and economy, right? But no, we are actually talking about both. Because poetry, including romantic dramas, delivered fresh from an artist's heart, written for the listener's pleasure, and expressed beautifully in song, can also be a story of economic effects. As Taylor Swift might say, there is in our lives a blank space that only culture and the humanities can fill. <laughs> there you Now, the Navajo writer, Sharon Bitsui, writes about Navajo literature, and he says, The layers of each line, image, or word carry not only personal story, but the entirety of a people's history and worldview. These stories restore memory and reconnect a people, some of whom have moved away from the sacred mountains to work and live in distant cities. But these stories are doorways opening inward, back into the world that is always home. So the humanities, to me, are a doorway. A doorway that opens inward, allowing us to learn about others, and by extension, to learn about ourselves. The history we encounter when we learn new things might make us uncomfortable, and in fact, it often makes us uncomfortable. But we owe it to each other, and we owe it to ourselves, as leaders, in particular, to understand our histories, to, as James Baldwin put it, disturb the peace. Now, I come and I do my visits, and part of my visits are hoping not to talk too much at you, but to learn more with you and from you. So now I am looking forward to sitting down with Gabe and... Uh, Vicki Lakes Battle from the Illinois Facilities Fund and Bernard Lloyd from the Urban Juncture and Build Bronzeville. So we can have more conversation, talk about the work of NEH, but also talk about how the humanities really does bring us together. Thank you so much.
2: Nobody fall. (laughs) I'm good. Great. Wow, you guys look fabulous. (laughs) You do? Because you are the rainbow of our city. And one of the reasons I was so excited to reach out to Dan when I heard that uh, Chair Lowe was coming to Chicago was because this place of gathering just gives us the opportunity for a a cross-sector conversation. And I always say... Well, I don't know if this is being recorded, but I always say, you know, like you go to the economic club, you're in the belly of the beast but you come to City Club and you're like with the people that get the things actually done. So um, we could edit that out, but you know what I mean. You know what I mean. And so it means a lot that you've chosen to to make your time and to be in this room. The other thing is when I heard Chair Lowe was coming and would be willing to speak with us at City Club and Dan said, yes, I think this would be great. I knew exactly who I wanted to have on stage. I wanted to have a financial... Specialist and I wanted an aerodynamics engineer um, and uh, you know Vicki, if you don't already know Vicki I'll tell you the following when I always think of like who do I wish I could be if I wasn't me Vicky is the person that comes to mind um, and not only because she's so- Smart, but because she is about systems and she's about change and she's about equity in, in its like most robust forms, and she comes at it through a financial lens, a numbers lens, and that's not a world I'm from. And so it's fascinating. And also she's Illinois. She's IFF's executive director of the Chicago Metro region. She shapes and inspires community-centered lending, um, development, real estate strategies, and let us remember that IFF is a nonprofit organization doing all those things Um, and today's engineer turned entrepreneur (laughs) and social impact wizard um, Bernard Lloyd uh, graduated from MIT, spent more than a decade as a consultant for McKinsey and Company. But when I first met you, I don't know if you remember this, um, it was by flashlight. Oh. <laughs> and we were and we were in a large space and it was dusty. and it was in the very early days of the vision of bringing the forum to the glory it deserves and um, i will never forget that in the forum the development of the forum which i hope we hear about is just one element of really again a systems approach to thinking about culture as an anchor in an infrastructure for economic prosperity mm-hmm. um so and then the last thing is like you all that are here today we have planners in the room policymakers in the room we have funders in the room and thank you so much funders for, for being here and for the support you give and what you might do in the future um, And uh, but we also have the business community in this room and that is because this is what the humanities does it provides the civic fabric that allows us to, to stitch together and I think you know one of the things I hope for the conversation is definitely going to be too short I know it already um, but I think what we have found and what is more and more clear is that you can have the policy, you can have the research, you can have the money, and those are necessary, but at the end of the day, they're insufficient mm-hmm. if you don't have the humanities at the table, if you don't have the context, the history, the meaning-making at the table. And so I think that's some of what we want to get into today. Um, and, and I'll just say one one thing personally, you know, Illinois Humanities was As the partner, we're a nonprofit organization, but as the state affiliate for the National Endowment for the Humanities, we were in the position to be part of the relief and recovery distribution of dollars, Mm -hmm. which was, first of all, thank you so, so much. Um, And and through that, that's why I wanted to have this conversation, because I think the things that emerge that we saw, we cannot unsee we cannot unsee that the humanities um, were not only about mitigating isolation and were not only about solace and it was not only about being creative and being connected our humanities organizations are the community anchors where they go for trusted information, where mutual aid happens. And so, you know, understanding the context in which these places operate was a game, was really a game changer to see that statewide. So I'm humanist, I'm biased. Uh, So I'm going to ask our financial specialist and our engineer, um, okay, what drives you? In your work, mm-hmm. and what resonated for you about what we heard, um, Shelley just share. And Vicky, why don't you go first, and then
4: you'll go next. Well, so I'm going to apologize in advance. I have prepared remarks, but Shelley's remarks inspired me. So my muse, my grounding, my shiro was my grandmother. And when you referenced the kitchen table, yep. so many life lessons were just. Shared, but also, you know, my grandmother was 4 feet 11, affectionately called Boots, and she was not, um, that that chick was just mighty. But in retrospect, you know, I was like, what are the humanities? But I was raised by an educator, a genealogist, a librarian who studied library science, you know, and had a degree in it, Mm -hmm. and understood that in order to make life worth living, that we needed to have a a better understanding and be grounded in humanist-like principles. And so I say that because um, my work, so then how do we get to finance? I was trying to find myself um, as a young person and tried all kinds of things. I found myself in the basement of Seaway National Bank, um, which was at one point the largest black-owned bank in the country where folks invested in me through storytelling, the whole nine, gave, And that was my first introduction to finance, but it was folks who saw it not robbery to invest in a wayward young woman who was trying to find herself and exposed me to opportunities in finance. The challenge with working for a black-owned bank is that everything means something other than a transaction. Right? Because you own it. I am the people that I serve. And so that grounding, it is my choice. So I've dedicated my thirty plus year career <laughs> to supporting um just development projects and people of all backgrounds and economic standings.
2: How about for you, Bernard? That was beautiful. I want to see a picture of boots. <laughs>
5: Well, I was really taken by the analogies that were made. First, the garden analogy where time slows. Yes. The, the kitchen table and then this notion of humanities opening doors to creation stories. Yes. Uh, because that's, we found that over and over again in our work. And I hope we'll be able to get into that a bit more. And then in particular also this notion of the interwovenness of humanities, of finance, of infrastructure, with the, black Mac, with the McDonald's example, yes. which, which I think is, is so fundamental to what we try to do. How do we interweave these things uh, in what we do to move ourselves, to move society forward? Uh, for me, I'm, I'm here because I, I feel very fortunate to have had the opportunities I've had, and, and um, I see so much untapped opportunity in our communities, so many assets that are unleveraged. And so that, that gives me and gives us a responsibility. And, and that, that's what gets me up every morning. Intense. appreciate
2: that. You know, <clears throat> a lot of us, we might love it, but we might not know how to explain the value proposition. You know, feeling good makes us feel good. It ends up feeling like it's a luxury. Um, And I think many of us know that. And many of us are trying to figure out how do we shift the model we have right now, right, which is a kind of relentless instability, even when we are anchors and centers of relationships, right? But the funding model is quite unstable. It's year to year. It's private philanthropy. Sometimes it's city dollars. Sometimes it's federal dollars. Um, So, you know, one of the questions I think we're hoping to unpack with your help is, you know, so what is the actual value proposition? You know, how do you, like, Shelley, if you don't mind, like, how do you respond to someone in government who says, ah, the humanities, we got to spend our money someplace useful yeah (laughs) my first response is let me tell you what communities
3: in your state and district we have funded (laughs) and let me tell you exactly how many of those are small rural communities Mm -hmm. where you want people to be voting for you um you know i think one of the things that i will always come back to is if you're going to have a healthy economy you have to have healthy
2: human beings
3: you have to have them and you have to have healthy communities, right? And how do you really ensure that your um, constituents, that these communities are healthy? That's where the humanities really do come in. That's where we can say, you know, this program really brought all of these underserved Um, students in and really started to give them a ground up in doing the work that you want to be doing, in seeing the growth that you want to be seeing. Or this small historic house has done all of this background work looking at the history of this community and is sharing that and is really helping people to understand, one, where they're coming from, two, where they're living now, three, what they can do to move things forward. And I do think that we saw a lot of what humanities support does in dealing with the COVID pandemic and seeing how much of our ARP funds and our care funds Mm -hmm. went into institutions, went into communities to really give them that you know that um, ability to continue to exist
2: and to keep going and, and to, to reach out further to the communities. Um, you know, as you're talking about those those pieces, I'm really reminded of the of a project that you were really the, the architect for, if I may, um, Chicago Cultural Treasures, which to me sounds like a way of addressing all of those things in one strategy. Can you talk a little bit about
4: I that? can and everything starts with a story, so you know, what wasn't in so I'm just going to follow that cab. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, I work for a financial institution. Uh, we do consulting about space and we develop, you know, stuff, right? And so my foundation friends, MacArthur, Tara, Walder, Builders, Ford, Joyce, Polk, and then this woman you might have heard of her, Mackenzie Scott, (laughs) inundated the financial institution with money, right, to make grants, but also to make investments in um, cultural institutions under a program that was actually um, conceived by Ford Foundation under the branding America's cultural treasures, so I think most of you are might be Chicagoans. You know we will not be outdone. <laughs> so we, you know, took back you know our land, did a little bit of analysis, and just based on our initial round, we just were contacted by 140 unique cultural institutions um, across the seven county area, and most, as you can imagine, were concentrated on the south and west sides of Chicago. One of the things that we learned was that the cultural landscape should be self-identified, right? The reason why I mentioned the irony of this is that the very technical people, so if you under, you, you all have brought money at some point in your lives, right? So you would not naturally pick us to administer a program regarding cultural organizations. And Gabe is probably gonna make me talk about this later, largely because cultural stuff is not legible in the financial context, typically. Okay, so I got a lot of support in the room. Thank you. Um, Thank you in advance. What we ended up doing with the support of our foundation partners, though, was to activate capital through just kind of a choose-your-own-adventure grant-making program. And so we made 40 grants so far totaling 14.4 million um, beginning in 2020. And I want to set the table and again, follow on with some of the points that Shelley was making. Chicago Cultural Treasures was not a pandemic relief effort. It just so happened that we were having this conversation when the world was experiencing a health crisis. And I say that because, and can't I be remiss if I didn't mention that we were experiencing twin pandemics. Yes, it was a health crisis and a period of racial reckoning that was brought on by the senseless murder that played out on television of George Floyd, right? And so lightning strikes, you know, in the right spot, Um, I won't, I probably that's a bad thing. So I'm going to hope that they edit that out. But pastor Chris Harris often says, um, never let a good crisis go to waste. I don't know that that's a firm business strategy. However, the world is watching. And so it was fertile ground for us to actually enter a serious conversation about the need for infrastructure, about the need to invest in organizations and institutions that have been here all along. Hence this notion of buried treasures, unburying them and serving as an anchor and in some respects a buoy. Um, And so we had unlikely partners in the funding scheme, which is why I think that this conversation is especially timely because um, a lot of our partners don't do this kind of grant making. Right, friends? I see some of you in the room. Okay, you don't have to nod so much, Amy. (laughs) Um, But I'm saying that because we were willing to try, and we entered into this space of query and learning about really what was different between the different art forms, specifically who gets to decide what's in and what's out.
2: Right. Well, you know, I I really appreciate how you map that out and pointed out this maybe unlikely convergence of folks with different levers, because it really does make me think a lot about what you've been trying to do in Bronzeville and maybe why it's really hard and feels stupid that it's so hard. So I'm just kind of you know, wondering, like, can you give us some examples of what's going on in Bronzeville and, um, and some of these arguments about, like, hey, there's real value when we think about economic prosperity. And when we say economic prosperity, we actually mean like, healthy livability.
5: Absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, I'd like to reflect for a moment on our experience Working, in, working on 51st 51st in the mm-hmm. Green Line. And that work began almost 20 years ago. This button that you may have found reflects the beginning of the work, so it's been a long time. Um, and we started with a focus on utilizing cuisine, black restaurants in particular, to drive community revitalization and to create sustainable economics. But very quickly... We realized that while that was a key offering, we didn't have food, quality food in our neighborhoods. We realized that we could not be successful if we just focused so narrowly on that piece of infrastructure, restaurants, and the things that go into it. And in fact, the first thing that we did on 51st Street was that we created a garden, Mm -hmm. Brunswick Community Garden. Because we recognized that the folks, our neighborhood, our community was not healthy. Our folks living in our community were not healthy. We were so disconnected. We were in the midst of chaos, in the midst of trauma, that in order to be successful as a commercial enterprise, we had to invest in reestablishing social links, social capital, in bringing folks back together. And so we started with this garden, and that garden led us to bike rides uh, because they're so democratic, bring folks onto a bike ride the neighborhood. We started with bike rides specifically to artistic and historical sites in Bronzeville, which again weaves us together. We can all get something out of that art, out of that history. And that led us to what we now call Boxville, a shipping container market, Mm -hmm. because we didn't have the capital to build real quote-unquote infrastructure. Mm -hmm. We used these bike rides to leverage into these boxes. And What we learned there is that, again, these boxes are cute. (laughs) We all understand them. We see them on trucks. Mm -hmm. But they really only succeeded when we began to layer culture, arts, culture, and humanities into that offering. And so we would do music. We would do arts on the boxes. We would do spoken word all around what was kind of the core initiative for our partners, the folks in the boxes, the commercial offering. And when that took off, then the vibe then the spirit, the, the feeling of 51st Street changed. Mm-hmm. Now, we're still deep into that process, but this has transformed 51st Street. Mm-hmm. We're now in the second wave of how do we address all, that, all of what happened during the pandemic where we got pulled apart even further. And uh, to, to um, uh, Vicky's point, one of, the, one of the tools that we've used in this is assembling different kinds of funding to make this happen. Because there's no way a commercial enterprise can support a garden a block away, can support all of this, this humanities, this arts, this culture. And so we've been able to gather other sources of funding to come together to recognize that it is one package. We have to have this really interweaving of efforts uh, to make it happen. And, and the good news is that we've gotten so far that today there's about $40 million in investments that's coming to 51st Street. Mm-hmm. Guinness right here. He's bringing a bunch of it. Uh, we, we, we have at Overton, right up the street, we have Policy Kings. We have a, a building that is built, being built right across the street from us on 51st by Kerry Young. This will be the first investment in residential housing on 51st Street in a century. God, that's amazing. So when we ask about the impact, yeah. that would not have happened. It's humanities that made the difference, yep. that allowed us to go to that point.
2: So this brings up an an issue that's, you know, maybe sensitive and maybe overdue, which is, you know, the idea that like nothing for us without us, Um, the idea that sometimes investment, including in arts and and culture, right, in the humanities can sometimes feel like gentrification or it can feel like, well, here it comes, that's good, but am I going to get to stay for example. That's not the only manifestation of it. So, you know, I know we're kind of... Conversation's not long enough. I know Mm -hmm. we're kind of closing in on time, but, like, yeah, where's accountability? What what does community-centered, partner-centered look like Mm -hmm. when some people have an ROI that's really about dollars and other people are having an ROI that's like, this is my life? Anyone?
4: Yeah. We're going to take this show on the road. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, it's kind of interesting. So my banking partners in the room, hey, Wintrust, you know, you guys are going to be the object of my affection just because your victims are proximate. We
2: love you, Wintrust.
4: <laughs> Part of the analysis, when you go to credit class, the four or five C's, depending on where you're trained, capacity to repay, right, collateral. Um, there was some other stuff, but one was character, And character, you know, can be, has always been embedded in any credit analysis platform. And that is where there is accounting for the story, right? So I don't want us, you know, maybe dollars and regulation and things make it more challenging to access capital. But I want you to know, you know, in this room today that um, it's always been there as part of the analysis. But I think it's more of a question of what the value of social capital is. And so this is the part, since people want to target people, where I get to air out some of our frustrations with the credit acquisition process. I want to submit to you today that we oftentimes conflate capital accessibility and capital availability. You get where I'm going with this? There's money in the world. In the ecosystem, we have to get in position and hence our conversation about infrastructure investments and infrastructure building, because not everything about the current capital system is broken. A lot of the regulation and the rules actually were formed because things may have gone bump in the night. We can have a conversation about whether or not, you know, we've overcorrected for some things. However, the rules were never put in place to push people out. Now I'm reminded of a statement about community that I heard, that the more successful that we are at building community, we're equally if not more successful at creating outsiders. So I want to own that in this system. At the same time, it's both of our work to do. So one of the things is making the work of the humanities organizations legible in partnership with those that have um, who know where the capital is, so that we can help co-create things that promote accessibility. And I say that because it's all of our work to do, right? So there's no formula, um, but the value. So let me say this about art, and I'm going to speed to because we got to hurry up to the next question. <laughs> the challenge with creators is that it's really difficult to monetize. And so some of your example, like what makes a Picasso a Picasso? I don't know. I'm from Roseland. <laughs> I'm only saying that just for dramatic effect because, you know, Tanika's work to me, I vibe with it, right? And it's of more value to me because it's personal. And I, I have an emotional connection to it. I am more inclined to activate my capital in service to work such as hers because I can relate to it. And we can talk about that, but I want to throw it back so to you. So
2: I'm going to, I'm getting the fingers of time which are less than i want them to be so i'm gonna do this because i know there's questions from the i think we have questions yeah all right all right so i want to honor the curiosity in this room and i'm gonna kick it over to you bernard um close you are close to the ground as it gets humanities in action we have a room full of Folks who, again, have their hand on the steering wheel of many efforts. What should we, you know, what's the call? What should people stop doing? Because it's stupid. What should people start doing? Maybe it's obvious. And what do you want people to do more of? And that could be for you and the work in Bronzeville, or that could be writ large.
5: That's a huge question. (laughs) Deserves its own session. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll try to say two or three things. Uh, stop. Mm. I think we need to stop allowing outside folks to own the projects that are publicly and philanthropically supported in our community. Mm. There's tremendous leverage to ownership, and we're losing that leverage because we don't own these things. I know it's hard, but we need, to, we need to figure out how to do that and stop doing the other thing. Do more of. I think we need to do more of, and I'm going I'm to be very parochial on this one, but, but it extends broadly. Do more of recognizing the incredible and highly underleveraged cultural assets in our communities. Just in Bronzeville, the heart of black Chicago, we have... Assets that range from the most iconic Southside Community Arts Center mm-hmm. to the most original obsidian house. Mm-hmm. Most heart-wrenching Emmett Till, maybe Till Mobley story that catalyzed civil rights to the most uplifting, deeply rooted dance theater filled Congress Hall just a few weeks ago. We have the route that took blacks to the stockyards and brought money back. It's, called, it's being developed as, as the Bronzeville Trail And then we have a trail that's embodied within the forum that goes to 1897 and before and stretches unbroken, providing a a trail of black leadership and representation. We have theaters that allow us to process who we are and where we might go in Definition Theater, William Marcy Mm -hmm. coming quickly. Mm -hmm. And we have this uniquely American music that was catalyzed by the blues in Bronzeville, Electrified Blues, Mojo Museum, Gospel coming out of Roswell. We have this incredible arts and culture that came from this community that shaped America. And that we all have supported, but we can do so much more. Mm -hmm. And I'll end with the the third is I want to challenge us all to start and to start to go big with the humanities and arts and culture. Mm -hmm. To recognize that we need a critical mass you know, they, 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 those, those brunswick assets that I just mentioned are just the tip of the iceberg. But when we create a cultural critical mass around that, we change the community. We enable infrastructure investment. We, we enable a sustainable economics in a way that without it is impossible. So mm-hmm. humanities, arts, and culture can heal our families and can heal our communities, and we need yep. to do a lot more of that. Yep.
0: We could uh, certainly end on that, but it's City Club, so we have some questions from the audience. (laughs) Um, And Tommy Collins, thank you for this. It's actually a two-party question, but we are tight on time. So I'm going to start with the front and see if we can get to a couple others first. Um, Great question, though. Grant-making, this is from Tommy Collins. Uh, Grant-making creates competition among organizations who are doing great work but have limited funds. Um, How can we foster more collaboration uh, stronger, interconnected humanities ecosystem.
3: I think you know one of the great things about um, NEH, and I have a lot of people who come up to me and say, "Oh, we got that NEH challenge grant. We just want to thank you because once NEH put its name on it, we got all of these other funders to come in, right?" and um, I'm always like, oh, that's really exciting, and it's one of the things that we really want to look at is how, how does NEH funding really leverage other private and pu- public funding into projects that are you know, very specific to communities, that are, are being built by communities. One of the things that really helps a partnership is to help actually tell the story. Because we talk about humanities all the time. We talk about NEH. There are lots of people who come up to me and say, I love NEH, thank you so much for what you did. And other people are like, you're the National Endowment for the Arts? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no.
3: We work with them. They're our sister organization. But right, they don't exactly know what we do, who we are, how our work and our funding really does make an impact. And helping to tell those amazing stories about the work that is being done, when you see these transformative gifts come in, when you see this work really change and bring communities together and build healthy communities, we need to better tell those stories. And if we could tell those stories, I think that we can build better
0: partnerships. That's a great answer. We might use that quote. Yes. yes. And it sounds very similar to the city club and economic club, right?
4: <laughs> yes.
0: We love each other. We all collaborate and do Definitely our part.
2: Please ed- edit that part out. <laughs> yes.
0: So back to you then, Gabe, because uh, this is this is a question. This is a comment and then a question, I, I believe, directed to you. Okay. Um, and this is from Julio Paz. Uh, Gabe Lyon has done a great job leveraging the humanities to put the state's challenges into context. That's not a question, but it's a it's a statement that I think many of us agree with. Uh, what does Illinois Humanities envision for the future?
2: Thank you for that question.
0: And you have thirty um, seconds.
2: And I have thirty seconds. <laughs> I think the the first thing that we envision is a stronger, deeper strategic partnership with the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Uh, hands down, the visions are very aligned. I think. That's one. I think the second thing is more grant-making. We are often the only funder or the largest funder for organizations that are small, that maybe don't have the capacity, for example, to, to, to reach out to MacArthur or aren't in their purview. So I think more grant-making. But, you know, the real vision is about a cultural ecosystem, a robust cultural ecosystem in the state. Because what Bernard just described, you can go to... Another neighborhood, you can go to Havana, Illinois, and that alignment of your elected officials with your chambers of commerce, with your arts and culture, that is the picture of livability, robust humanities at the center and at the table. So those three things. Partnership with our state, best state partner, more grant making, and really a robust ecosystem. That's what we want to make happen.
4: And then tell the story. Tell the story.
0: <laughs> and tell the story. Chicago loves collaboration, so we'll we'll keep that up. Uh, let's. Uh, I think this could probably be our final question, um, and this is from from Ava from the Chicago History Museum. Uh, what are your thoughts on the economic impact of the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Me? I'm not deciding who's the I'm the moderator.
0: <laughs> um,
2: you, telling the story, because the 250th is honestly just an excuse to tell the stories that got pushed aside and are undertold, and frankly, to celebrate what's already been happening. That's mm-hmm. what I think. And so I think the economic investment starts at the top and at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Understanding and amplifying what we're already doing as a way to make the argument that we have to move away from this intermittent funding to funding this cultural infrastructure, just like we fund our fabulous libraries. And it's a (laughs) no-brainer the way... What's happening in Pullman happens, and it's consistent. But that's, I don't know. Well, what do I you think? I was just going to add this an opportunity to make it
4: real. Is. We have a school that takes the village and Nakisha Hobbs' team, you know, in the building. And so it's, you know how years ago that history was, it wasn't real. Right, And we have the opportunity because we 're living the history, and so how do we interpret the declaration in the current context? because if we really think about what the humanities are it 's trying to really get us to center in community context and make it personal so chairman lowe 's analogy of you know the the doorway and the kitchen table is relevant to all of us, so how do we make in a period where just political issues that we never thought we'd encounter are um, occurring on a routine basis. Where for the next generation and generations after that, we celebrate what our founding fathers, you know, originally taught us, and we elevate the significance and the importance in 2024 in every neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Good
0: I thought that would be simple, but there's so much more to that. We might, we may need a whole program on, uh, on that.
2: Well, you know, I have an offer.
0: Oh, Dan, no um,
2: I was thinking, what if we organize a field trip to Bronzeville?
0: Was just thinking the same. I'm going to a bike ride. <laughs>
2: um, so maybe, so maybe we can figure that out. Do you want to talk about how we can figure that out? Because I, I, I think figure it's a great. That out.
0: Yeah. We will figure that out. Everyone's welcome. We'll wait until maybe March or April. Yeah. How about it's um, a little bit warmer for the bike ride?
2: It's a little bit warm. I'll just say in, in in closing for this group. I really want to one thank each and every one of you for making space and giving us an opening for this conversation conversation doesn't end and also i'd really like to hearken us back to felita's call to us um, that we dream together that's a really big takeaway is the unexpected partnerships pulling in the same direction and so just to hearken back to our poem of root work, because roots are what stop erosion, uh, in soil and seed till our dreaming ends in our grand and brilliant garden. Thank you.
0: That said it all. Thank you again, Chair Lowe. It's been an honor to have you. Thank you, Vicky. Thank you, Thanks. Bernard. And of course, Gabe for pulling this all together. Uh, Chair, you're welcome back anytime to Chicago. <laughs> and we look forward. There's so much more to Thank come uh, here at the City Club. Please, everyone, come back soon and often. There's a lot of programs coming up in the uh, in the next week, and the next month. Uh, a couple of great events that we'll be having and announcing soon. Uh, what an incredible discussion. Thank you again. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Valentine's have a great day.